0: Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. This video is sponsored by CuriosityStream. Get access to my streaming video service, Nebula, when you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in the description. In the future, we may have materials able to change their form at the snap of a finger or wave of a hand, and it is possible even that finger and that hand might be made of such materials. So today we'll be looking at the concept of smart matter and programmable matter things able to assume many shapes or perhaps even complex machines and organic structures in moments. We will be looking at varying levels of this technology and what roles and uses it might have, and even if it might be the fate of a future humanity. Now it is common to think of smart matter as more or less being nanobots, tiny machines that can do virtually any job, including self-replicating, or latching onto each other to form shapes, and so today we'll also be asking what, if anything, differentiates smart matter from nanobots. Probably the way the concept of smart matter got out into the public eye was with the 1991 blockbuster, Terminator 2 Judgment Day where Robert Patrick plays the T-1000, the time-traveling and shape-shifting evil robot made of liquid metal. This was a pretty vague thing in terms of function, as he could appear like any human, including clothes and equipment, but couldn't make complex machinery, which while handy for plot and special effects doesn't make a lot of sense. A gun should be easier to form than a passable semblance of human skin for instance, as should the alchemical equipment for brewing up gunpowder and we'll return to that later today. The franchise kept it vague but revisited in the later film, Terminator Genesis, where the notion of mini tiny machines had replaced liquid metal itself, and that's one we'll focus on a lot for today but the liquid metal notion definitely got this idea of smart or programmable matter into public awareness. At the same time, this is where we started seeing memory metal used in commercial applications, probably most memorably, with eyeglass frames. Memory metal was the common term though they are what is known as a shape memory alloy. The two most common types are alloys of copper aluminum nickel and titanium nickel, and titanium was also very much a high-tech super metal of the 1990s, so both lent themselves to marketing. A roughly 50-50 mix of nickel and titanium for instance creates an alloy with a shape memory effect, or SME, and generally comes in two types, one-way and two-way memory. One memory is where the material, often called a martensite, had a cold state and when you bend it or deform it, so long as you don't take it above a critical point of stress or temperature, it will return to that cold state. Taken above that, it will often then cool to a new baseline shape that may be deformed and which it will snap back to now, a new cold state. This is your default material for eyeglass frames for instance, allowing you to refit them by running them under hot water and lightly bending them whereas the two-way has a cold shape and a hot shape and will bounce between the two when heat is applied, arguably more like a switch. Today's episode is not about shape memory alloy beyond noting it as sort of the basic programmable matter and the case of the two-way alloy would represent a switch based on temperature. Liquid crystals often meet this criteria, aligning into a nice geometrical order when a certain temperature or pressure is reached, or electric electrical field is applied and so on frequently resulting in changes of other characteristics like the material's optical properties, and this is how your LCD screen works, or liquid crystal displays, and these are all examples of programmable matter, which is loosely defined as matter which has the ability to change its physical characteristics in a programmable fashion based on some input or condition. Appropriately the term was coined in 1991, the same year Terminator 2 came out, and back when the TV screens, films and shows appeared on, were as deep as they were wide, as LCDs were new things. As a quick shout out to my alma mater, Kent State, our physics and chemistry departments invented that technology, and while it wasn't my cup of tea, I slanted to nuclear and cosmology, it was what the largest number of my professors generally worked on. I'm hesitant to say liquid crystals are programmable matter themselves but they would likely be a component of many types, same for semiconductors, our go-to material for tidal switches in electronics, which change their property based on the voltage applied to them, being basically on or off, or conductor or insulator, depending on the voltage. A bit down the road, over at Carnegie Mellon, they were also working on the Claytronics project, which is one type of programmable matter and introduces us to the notion of claytronic atoms, or catoms, tiny bits able to be assembled in changing shapes with their neighbors to form something. I rather like the catom term because the word atom is great for indivisible, the notion of the smallest object which could not be sliced further into subcomponents. That is obviously not true of the prematurely named atoms, which may be sliced into electrons, neutrons, protons, or even quarks, and a catom is divisible too but would represent the smallest component of any programmable matter. Now a catom isn't a specific type of atom, or even necessarily an atom or molecule at all, indeed it could be a large object like a big helium balloon, which is the context where I first encountered the term in the paper Ultralight Modular Robotic Building Blocks for the Rapid Deployment of Planetary Outposts. And here a catom is explicitly a modular robot. And while many are contemplated in that paper, and others, many of which are from the early 1990s too, the basic notion might be a regular old helium balloon but with tough skin, some connector points around its surface, a few solar panels and batteries, and some electric fan for moving, plus some radio and computer components inside. Then they can all assemble themselves into various shapes and indeed they could presumably even have shaded chunks still getting power from their neighbors up on the top layer. As a quick side note, powering a catam is one of the tricky parts especially for small ones and not one to dip into today, see our Portable Power episode for a list of possible options, but I would bet ultra-tiny ones would either use very small RTGs or tiny microwave receivers and only operate near a wireless power transmitter. Going back to our balloon catam, now you've got some big floating raft in the sky you can put into any form you want, in a marine setting this might be buoyant spheres. In space it might be solar sails, and many other options too, we're just assuming the basic cadm here seeks to have movement and station keeping roles. That might be as an impenetrable shield forming out a person to ward off someone emptying a machine gun at them, or it might be a big floating raft of solar panels hovering the sky made of meter-wide helium balloons with solar panel tops or just airfield balloons sitting on water. For applications this might be the replacement of an umbrella, rafts that floated over your head to keep off the rain or too much sun, or light the ground in front of you at night, or it might be the emergency system hanging around a bridge or tall building to catch people or cars who fell off. A lot of times the usage is another concept we get from Ancient Greece, the Phalanx, which was very focused on the standardization and coordination of individual troops or groups of units into larger ones and is where we see techniques like the shield wall getting explored. A lot of the strength of the Phalanx formation, or its various cousins, is based on how well its members could maintain the formation and how quickly and accurately orders to shift shape or war could be relayed. Much like getting power to catoms, relaying information between them quickly and accurately is another important problem to solve. It is here that we also need to note a probably inevitable weakness of smart matter too, which is outright material weakness. Most materials are getting their strength in the connection of every atom, and here you only have the connection strength of the atoms themselves, which would generally mean that while a big lattice of hexagonal carbon atoms, graphene, has a very high tensile strength, some parallel arrangement of individual katams, connected with grapples or magnets or what have you, is probably nowhere near the binding strength that Graphene would have, even if it were made from it. I mentioned earlier that it seems weird that the T-1000 from Terminator couldn't form guns, and we see a similar limitation with many shapeshifters in sci-fi like Odo from Star Trek Deep Space Nine and his species, the xenophobic founders of the Dominion, They can make blades from their arms but not cannons, however one fair point is that cadams are not a good way to be making something like a gun or kiln because they won't have the same temperature and pressure tolerances some slab of regular matter is going to have. You don't use a ton of robots to make a gun barrel out of or metal refinery, you use them to build a gun or metal refinery out of dumb matter and then go build other stuff or operate those. We often envision tiny nanobots in sci-fi going to something, or someone, and disassembling it and rebuilding it to something else, like mining on asteroids so that a spaceship grew from it. And indeed you might use a skin of nanobots on the surface of one to extrude a spaceship, but in practice they'd probably be forming only to create the machinery that was focused on that job, like a kiln or a dump truck or a drop hammer. They wouldn't be sitting around in that war themselves because it would probably damage them while they also did an inferior job. It's like asking a human to form a bucket chain to put out a fire. They can do it, but in the long term they will instead build a pump and hose. Another limitation on smart matter is more conceptual. We picture it as made of a single uniform catam, one standardized tiny object of which you have tons all working together, but regular atoms don't come in just one type, nor does the catam equivalent for humans and other life forms, the biological cell. Those self-replicate near perfectly but there's no uniformity of them in all but the simplest of colony organisms, because specialization is so often helpful and when even something the size of an insect might have a billion cells in it, and trillions for large animals, you still can have the advantage of standardization while having thousands or millions of individual types, each numbering thousands or millions themselves. Of course uniformity does have its advantages. The largest organism on the planet is a single fungi, a honey mushroom, spread over an entire forest area, and it's probably thousands of years old too. Indeed, while trees often get viewed as the biggest and longest-lived organism, many colony organisms like that tree-killing honey mushroom live really long times. Now I'd imagine any mycologist would take exception to me calling fungi uniform, many are multicellular and with specialized cell types, Regardless, colony organisms tend to be a good reminder that you need a lot done without diversity. At the same time, humans and other large animals are a good reminder that a single uniform cell, or catum, is not likely to be an optimal approach to smart matter, except maybe for speed, as it would tend to seem likely that a single simple and rapidly self-replicating catum might be the fastest way to, for lack of a better word, infect and transmute a new place. This is the Grey Goose Scenario where some tiny self-replicators turn everything around them into more of themselves, the Grey Goo, but I suspect you would follow that up almost immediately with a complex ecosystem of many catam types. This is arguably what happened on Earth with the formation of the first biological cell and its descendants slowly mutating into a diverse system after Green Gooing Earth, and indeed it's very debatable if a single catum Grey Goo would be fastest. A bunch of tiny robots disassembling a planet is a scary idea from science fiction but not a terribly plausible one. They are utterly vulnerable to a specialist attack, a weapon or virus tailored to them, they'd presumably still do better building large specialized equipment for tasks, like a big cauldron for smelting material, or centrifuge and so on, things which perform better at big sizes based on iron-clad physical laws. A lot of this single atom notion does also originate from Drexler's Universal Assembler or Molecular Assembler, a device able to guide chemical reactions by positioning reactive molecules with atomic precision, or to push individual atoms into place in the more extreme case, and this assumes it could self-replicate. Eric Drexler is usually considered the father of nanotechnology, and amusingly he did his doctoral thesis at MIT in 1991, the same year Terminator 2 came out. I feel like there's some option for a convoluted time travel plot worthy of that franchise there, with all the 1991 nanotech papers and advancements, but in fact Drexler's doctoral thesis came after his best-known work, his 1986 book Engines of Creation, which is the source of so many nanotech ideas including Grey Goo. Drexler’s still around and active, like so many of the titans of computer development, and unlike a lot of folks in my own field of physics, even relatively recent gents like Freeman Dyson or his mentor Richard Feynman, who are two of my own role models and whom we talk about a lot in this show, both of whom have passed away, and amusingly Drexler says it was one of Feynman's lectures, there was plenty of room at the bottom, that inspired his work. Feynman's lecture on that topic back in 1959, the same year the MOS Transistor was invented at Bell Labs, heralded our interest in nanotechnology by discussing a lot of the possible physical limits on how small we could go with technology. Let me also give a shout out to sci-fi legend Robert Heinlein for his short story Waldo in 1942, in which an inventor, Waldo F. Jones, patents a giant reduplicating pantograph, or basically a big mechanical hand that mimicked his own movements. And as Feynman points out in his lecture 17 years later, that pantograph technique can go in reverse too, making our hand gestures or manufacturing process be duplicated at tinier scale through a ridiculously simple bit of technology. This is essentially the telemanipulator or robot manipulator we envision when thinking of everything from robot surgery done by surgeons a continent away to space construction and robots controlled down on the ground, or even the giant mecha battling each other in so much anime. Waldo gets used a lot in discussion of such devices too, in honor of that story and author, but it is pertinent today for two reasons. First, it reminds us that size is not the critical part of smart matter or assembler robots. The cabins they make up might be molecular in size, maybe even smaller using something like mag matter, or they might be enormous things dwarfing human scale. Second, they might range from incredibly complex to something that really was little more than a tiny motor, battery, receiver, and pantograph arm, and for both size and complexity, we should assume the reality of these machines will run the gamut, big and small, simple and complex, just like in biology or many other complex systems. Now when picturing smart matter, it is easy to imagine little gray metallic drops or cubes or something but we can also imagine long threads weaving together, and we of course see this in biology with both certain types of cells, such as muscle fibers or nerves, and down below the cellular level with proteins. A cadm formed as a thread able to contract itself can not only form many patterns with itself or others, but has a method of locomotion built in through those contractions, one that a large weaver many of them can use for shifting its topology too. We also see a lot of overlap conceptually with 3D printers, and the mention of proteins raises an atypical use of smart matter. While it's normal in sci-fi for shapeshifters to be made of something like smart matter, and to be able to look like things made of flesh and blood, we don't tend to think of flesh and blood smart matter much, we do with 3D printers though, as we often think of using them to print replacement organs or to synthesize food. And it is worth noting that a tiny robot knitting a long line of protein is actually one of the simpler projects such a device could be employed for, by duplicating efforts by which proteins such as DNA or RNA are knit together by already. We often imagine future humanity being saturated with tiny robots who knit and stitch us back together, repairing organs and tissues and nerves and so on, and I really do expect this to be a technology that is pretty decently advanced during the 21st century. Carbs, fats, proteins, or really amino acids, serving as life's basic building blocks and fuel, as something of an analogy to Catoms, are likely to have their own analogies for Catoms, various basic instructions, materials, and fuel packets they can shift around, and life will likely be a very good basis for comparison and development of these technologies Indeed, amino acids as the true building block of life might not simply have some analogy in small matter, like various packets of metals, alloys, and ceramics, but may be used in it too. We picture machinery as inevitably metal, but it often is not, and as I already mentioned earlier, there's no expectations of great strength in smart matter objects, even in cases where catoms might be principally carbon nanotubes, so using nature's example, we might simply use amino acids to build from. Indeed there's no real might to it, as again the nanotech landscape should be a diverse one, and thus some might be very long tendrils of carbon nanotubes and others might border on simply being tailored biological cells, organelles, enzymes, or viruses. Or might be tiny factories that made those, so could smart matter turn into a cupcake for you to eat? A Tricky point because on the one hand it seems a silly application, but in day-to-day usage you could easily imagine someone having smart matter with them all the time that simply formed a cup for them to drink from. How does that cup get filled with water? Well, we could imagine in the middle of a desert a person wearing a cloak of smart matter, which might be composed of a thousand different types of cadams of different sizes and materials, and that cloak might turn itself into a big condenser, or aerial well, possibly an active one such as a dehumidifier, in conjunction with some solar panels for power, and then turning into a full glass of water. In a house, it might be a little walnut-sized bead that detached from that cloak, shot meter-long carbon nanotube tendrils off the ceiling like a spider's thread, and swung its way over to the sink, turned the water on, filled itself like a balloon, then swung its way back to your hand and assembled into a cup. Indeed, it's not hard to imagine extruding tenders to grab tea bags or coffee grounds or a wall outlet electric plug to brew you a cup of tea or coffee. And this is the big thing about smart matter of this type, it's not that it specializes in doing some individual tasks, it's that it can repurpose itself for being decent at a ton of tasks. So you don't need a robot drone bringing you tea from the microwave and another robot for cleaning the dust off the floor your cloak or smart metal just oozes out to attend to these tasks in whichever method that current technology, situation, and preference allows. So it might aim for neo invisible quiet operation so as not to distract or wake you, or it might say, I can do this but let's call the delivery bot instead. Indeed I'm using this cloak analogy because there is very much a protective cloak or safety blanket aspect to such technology that makes me confident that everyone will be wearing it at some point. It's the airbag that deploys around you in a car collision, the strength magnifying sheath that makes you able to lift a car or deflect a bullet, much like the alien symbiote we see in the Marvel comics for Venom, Spider-Man, or tel Call. And the comic book's superhero implications are not hyperbole, imagine if your clothing really was some mix of various smart cadm types able to rapidly assemble, you could jump out of an airplane and glide down to the ground or parachute or hang glide around or even lithobreak at rather high speed with an airbag. There's no reason these little cadams might not include varieties that are photovoltaic, or able to engage in fairly quick chemistry either. So instead of dumping you out of an airplane, we could probably shove you out of an airlock on a spaceship and it might form a spacesuit and power panel and solar sail to get you to some rock that it could leach air and raw materials out of, including either directly fabricating food or going through multi-step processes. How big of a chemistry lab does it need to grow sugars, carbs, proteins, and print them into food for you, or to build a capsule in a freezer to stick you on ice while it builds a beacon and patiently waits for rescue, or builds a spaceship to take you home. It might already pervade your cells so it can just repair them and recycle them, in the absence of food, and the cloak or clothes might just be some exterior element of what amounts to a second skeleton or nervous system threaded throughout your whole body or your whole house or planet. A smart house might literally be one made from entirely smart matter, able to constantly reconfigure. Though it might also include large elements, a skeleton, centimeters across or meters long, to be its Lego blocks. Again, catoms need not be any specific size or complexity, and big and simple can do things that small and intricate cannot. They could be tiny too, aerosol-sized, what's implied in the concept of utility fog, a spray of catoms able to assemble into things and usually imply to be hollow, shelled and hollow. But maybe the most important thing smart matter might assemble into is people themselves. Because we are already essentially a complex weave of catoms various cells, many not even of human DNA, working to be our body. Why bother with a cloak or suit of smart matter when you can simply be that smart matter? You might feel utterly human to the touch, warm, soft, smooth, little hairs and follicles and even blood, looking human on an x-ray, but really be made of some brew of cadoms. This would seem physically possible and also offer us a person who was nigh immortal, and my hunch is this is a much more likely scenario for humanity entering a transhuman era than options like mind uploading to digital worlds or cyborg bodies because it allows the same gradualism that folks often seem to like with mind uploading. There the notion is that we could copy all of your neurons onto a machine for emulating, a digital copy, but your mind is still there so we just made a copy of you, not a cut and paste transfer. Folks will often say that a slow replacement of neurons, as they failed, with robot equivalents would be a gradual approach that would seem more comfortable for maintaining identity, compared to a rapid transfer and copy of the brain to a computer in mere seconds. I occasionally mention that it should be just as easy for such technology to rebuild your actual normal or neurons too, replicating or repairing a damaged neuron rather than replacing it with an electronic, mechanical, or digital version. They should be able to maintain the flesh and blood you indefinitely, just with lots of little robots in and around you. And that's a very sturdy you too, probably with a copy of your brain available for activation or to repair grossly damaged neurons if someone sledgehammered your skull. And keep in mind, you already have trillions of inhuman nanomachines running through you, we just call them gut bacteria, mitochondria, or viruses. And it raises the philosophical point if maybe we are wrong to be defining you and yourselves by whether or not they have your DNA in them, as though that was the be-all and end-all of your identity. However, that gradualism approach makes me think this future is very likely but for many would be a temporary place, as they slowly shifted more and more of themselves into being smart matter rather than simply being surrounded and impregnated by it. In many ways, as we've seen today, it is already something we resemble, a complex sea of a trillion different cells of a million different kinds and purposes, so for many it might feel the natural path, slowly becoming a cloud consciousness able to take on any form it wants, be it human or spaceship, or human foci but also a giant spaceship, your own avatar, both the king in the castle and the castle itself, as it were. Or the board sitting on the ramparts, or all of the above, sequentially or simultaneously. It’s an interesting concept to imagine that the future of smart matter might not just be intertwined with humanity, but what many humans may in time become. So our topic was rather divided in two directions today slightly more present-day chemistry and some far-future implications about how our future with, or even as, smart matter might proceed. Neither really fits in today's topic, but rather as an extension of it, so it seemed a good place to end for the day. However, if you want to hear more on both topics, we will be having an extended edition to talk about that future as a cloud consciousness over our nebula to discuss what that existence is like a bit more, and, if you're interested in learning some more chemistry, CuriosityStream recently added a Crash Courses section and one of those is on Chemistry, and by the always informative Hank Green, many of you know from Crash Course and SciShow. CuriosityStream is full of amazing and entertaining educational content, but I'm always impressed by how many new and great shows and documentaries they add each month and of wonderful quality. Now as mentioned, we'll be having an extended edition over on Nebula, to look a bit deeper at life as smart matter, if you are interested in seeing that, or any of our other extended editions, you can try out Nebula any time. Nebula is our streaming service created to give YouTube creators more flexibility, and not be at the whim of YouTube's algorithms for our content, or any other platform. It is the largest creator-owned streaming service in existence, and all of SFIA's content is up there, ad and sponsor free, and released a couple days early. We also release an extended edition or two every month, and have some exclusive content like our Coexistence with Aliens series. It's a great way to help support some of your favorite channels while getting ad-free content. Now you can subscribe to Nebula all by itself, but we've also partnered up with Curiosity Stream, the home of thousands of great educational videos like Hank Green's Crash Courses, to offer Nebula for free as a bonus if you sign up for Curiosity Stream using the link in our episode description. That lets you see the amazing content on Curiosity Stream and Nebula for less than $15 a year, just use the link in the episode's description. So that's gonna wrap us up for March but April is right around the corner and we'll start the month off with examining the concept of self-growing space habitats and bases. After that we have our Sci-Fi Sunday episode, Multi-Species Empires, followed by asking what would happen if Earth lost the Sun and became a rogue planet. Now one reason that might happen is if we decide to use Earth as a big spaceship and send out to travel to other worlds and systems in the galaxy but a topic we don't discuss as much is how we might travel around new worlds once we get to them, and we'll look at that on April 21st. Now if you want to learn when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel and hit the notifications bell, and if you enjoyed this episode please hit the like button and share it with others, and leave a comment below. You can also join the conversation on any of our social media forums, find our audio only versions of the show, or donate to support future episodes. And all those options and more are listed in the links in the episode description. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week.